Welcome, everyone, to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. In this week's episode, we welcome Olympia De La Flora. She is an associate superintendent in Marion County, Ohio, at Marion County Public Schools. And she is someone who truly believes in her heart that every kid can flourish and you can help them flourish by knowing their story, really learning who they are and creating an environment to letting them thrive. I know those feel like a lot of buzzwords, but you'll hear as she talks, it's um, a commitment to knowing the adults in the building and knowing the kids in the building to create the best atmosphere for kids to thrive and for the school to thrive as a whole. She's someone who has an, a great deal of experience, but the most interesting experience is her uh, time at one of the toughest schools, one of the lowest performing schools in the state of Ohio. Uh, we dive into how do you, you know, from day one, how do you go in and build the right relationships? How do you, who do you focus on? How do you focus on the right things? Knowing that I think she said there are six principals in five years before she got there, or she was the sixth principal in five years. Uh, it's crazy. So diving into what brought her into education, diving into the heart of what drives her every single day. And then the, the, ideas of how do we create a system where every kid can be known, every kid can matter, and every kid can flourish. Uh, it's an enjoyable conversation. We appreciate Olympia making time for us. I hope you all enjoy it. If you have not subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you, as always, if you're listening to this and you hear uh, something Olympia says that could be encouraging to someone you know, please send this podcast to them. That's what we're here for. Um, thank you as always for listening. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Olympia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. So as you know, our first question is the same. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? Well, my name is Olympia Delafora and I am an avid and very passionate educator um, I'm currently serving as an assistant superintendent in Marion City Schools, which is located in Marion, Ohio. Awesome. So tell me, I, I assume you grew up in Ohio, maybe? Uh, tell me a little bit about your education journey of, you know, I'm really curious about when you knew you wanted to be an educator, a teacher, and then when you knew you wanted to be a principal and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, really, education has been in my future since I was born. My mother was a elementary school teacher and my father actually was a city school bus driver. So um, they were both very involved in the public schools. And I, like most kids, grew up saying, I don't want to be a teacher like my mother. I want to do something different. And so I did try to fight that for a while. Um, but then when I was in college, I started out in engineering and realized that I didn't have the heart to write programs. And uh, so I actually finished a biology degree with my bachelor's and then decided to go into education uh, with my master's. And I did a little teaching in high school uh, with my biology degree. And I just realized, hey, you know, not just because I come from parents that are educators and involved in education, but because there really was a true passion there for me. And um, being in education was just, it felt very natural for me and it was easy for me. Whereas when I was exploring engineering or going into the medical profession, it was a little bit more difficult for me. I kind of felt like I was trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. And once I finally embraced education, you know, things just started to fall into place for me. When you say easy for you, is it the 
the education side of it that was just really natural? Or was it the, I want to influence and motivate and connect that was the easy, feels like home kind of part of that? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. But I think what is more of a driving force is that passion and that connection to people. And I think that through the role of being a teacher and a principal, uh, I realized that I really had the opportunity to touch many lives and not just the lives of my students, but also a staff as well as families and also community members who may not really understand some of the challenges that we have working in public schools. So I think for me, it was a little bit of both, but obviously the driving force is we all know that life, our time on earth is limited. And Mm -hmm. I decided that I wanted to spend my time putting some good in the world and helping people. And being an educator has allowed me to do that. I love that. I love one of the things we talk about with Change Starts here is life short. So what are we going to do with it? And so it's refreshing to hear you have that mentality even back then. So did you know that you wanted to be a principal or, you know, we've had other folks say, I never thought I was going to be a principal and I was tapped. Or once I got into the system, I really thought that could be a great place for me. How did you end up deciding to become a principal? Yeah, never went into this thinking I would be a principal (laughs) again. um, Just was thinking I was going to be a teacher for 30 plus years. And Mm. I knew that I was having great impact and influence in my classroom. And I knew that because of the relationships that I was able to build, the growth I was able to see in students, both academically and behaviorally. And there was just something in me that said, you know, I really want to have greater impact. You know, I I would like to maybe impact a school of kids versus just a classroom. So that's really what motivated me. Um, I also kind of wanted to make my own rules a little bit, have a little bit more autonomy. So I figured, hey, if I can be the principal, I can make more rules and, you know, help more kids. So that really was the driving force of having me to start that step up the leadership ladder. I'm actually curious. So when you first became a principal, what were the demographics of your first school? Was it a unique, unique challenge or uh, was it something that you, you know, had been the assistant principal and kind of worked your way up and just knew that you were going to take over that school? Yeah, I will tell you uh, in my training to become a principal, I was an assistant principal or leadership intern is what they right. called it for about three years before I became a principal. And mm. when I got my first assignment, I was really questioning, is this really what I want to do? Because I was put at a very challenging schools. It was actually one of the lowest performing schools in the state of Ohio. Oh, wow. And there had been, I was the the sixth principal there in the past five years. So those children um, had had a lot of turnover in leadership. The teachers had had a lot of turnover. Uh, 100% of my school qualified for economically disadvantaged. So they were all free uh, breakfast, free lunch, all of yep. that. Uh, we were located in a not so safe neighborhood. Um, so kids had to overcome obstacles just to get to school. Yep. And I almost felt like, you know, I would just be babysitting and trying to, you know, keep the fires out as a beginning principal. And I didn't really see that I was going to be able to make a difference there, knowing what the history at the, of that school had been of academic failure and lots of, I would call it bad behavior um, in the building. But um, again, you can't really fault the kids for that because when you have that kind of turnover, which is actually typical for low performing schools, it's really hard for children and staff to make those connections to leadership. Yeah. So then, you know, you come in, one, you, that's what I was trying to ask. I was trying to figure out how excited were you about just the principal's job after, you know, three years of training. So a little tentative, <laughs> then you go to a school where it's clear that, 
No one stays longer than a year, maybe a few months in the worst case. How were you able to really put your head and heart into the opportunity to dive in and do the work that was necessary? Yeah, I think it was. I didn't mention I was at an elementary school, so we had um, pre-K to fifth grade. Yep. I I really think it was a personal commitment that I made. Uh, again, it didn't take me long to fall in love with the children that were there and wanting to figure out things that I could do differently to make that school a better place and make the lives of those children a better place. So I made a personal commitment that I was going to remain at that school until those kindergarten students who I started with finished the fifth grade. Wow. So I was able to um, to do that. So I did stay there for six years. And, you know, we lost a lot of kids, meaning kids moved because, again, this is another thing that poverty um, pours over to your school is there's a lot of movement because children lose housing and they have to find new housing. We tried to yeah. find creative ways to get them to stay with us. Um, but for me, I just said, you know, these kids deserve better. They're going to have a principal that's going to be here with them. These families are going to have a principal that they can, you know, have trust with and, and belief in. And so it was really a personal commitment because of all of the things that had to be done, as you can imagine, um, processes and procedures had to be, you know, retaught to teachers as well as the children that were there and parents. And so just putting those things in place and really trying to find out what the needs of the students were and to work towards addressing those, those are the driving um, forces that helped me to stay in that position as a principal. And again, I started to see what we would say, the fruits of my labor um, and started to really build rapport with those staff members. They were willing to learn. They were willing to understand what our children were coming to us with, and they were willing to adapt their teaching strategies to meet students where they are. So this is going to be a oversimplified question that you're not probably not going to give me that easy answer on. But, you know, I'm thinking the folks who are listening to this podcast are folks who either are in leadership right now or are aspiring to leadership. And it's really interesting to hear you take over a school that had that background and the demographics and commit to staying all the way through for five or six years and you stayed all the way through. So if someone has that same aspiration, what are the most important things they need to be doing from day one or right now in the middle of their school year? What do they need to make sure that they're building with the foundation so that they do have a place they can grow for the next five, six, 10 years? Yeah, I, I think you always have to look on the bright side. And I know that sounds like, you know, a cheesy statement, but really you will hear all of the negative. Usually when we hear people that have complaints, we always hear from the people who aren't happy, but we never hear from the people that are satisfied and happy. So I think always look at the things that you have the ability to build upon. Secondly, I would say you have to get to know yourself as a leader. You have to understand who you are as a person. I think a lot of times we forget as leaders that we're people deep down inside too. And you have to get to know, you know, maybe you, maybe we as leaders trigger some of our staff or trigger some of our students. And we have to understand who we are as a person. And we may have to work on some strategies to, again, meet the needs of the people that we're serving or the people that we're working with. And I don't want to say this is the last thing because I think it's important, but that relationship piece of the people that you work with is, you know, to me, it can make or break you. So you will have people who will work in the most deplorable conditions. And that's not just within education. You'll you'll look at some companies or some environments and say, oh my gosh, how do these people do this every day? Like they show up, they don't complain. They, there's this great climate, you know, that they have among their colleagues. 
And that's because they have great relationships and they have trust with their leader. And so for me, I think it's important for us to, you know, model for everyone. I, I, I am not the type of leader that will be behind a closed door and say, you know, this is my office. Don't come in my office. There's a delineation. You know, I want to be a part of the team. And the only way that you can do that is being out there, being visible, talking to your people, understanding, you know, what's going well, what challenges they're having. And then I think as leaders, we have to try to figure out how we remove some of those barriers and so allow what, those teachers to be able to teach, allow those students to be able to learn. But you have to be visible. You have to talk to your people. And, you know, if you have those relationships, you can have those hard conversations um, and people will trust you. And then as you're leading um, along the way, then they will follow. Yeah. So right now, I think I'm sure it's one of the problems that you guys even experience is it seems to me, no matter what the demographics of your district or school area finding teachers and filling seats is harder than it's ever been. And so my two questions for you are, do you have any ideas of like how to help people? You know, if you're, if you were going to start a school right now, or as you're advising your principals who are leading schools or about to start leading schools, what's your advice of helping them find the right kind of talent? And then secondly, how to build those relationships early so that they can start building that trust from day one versus, you know, taking two or three years to really earn it. Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, pipeline right now for teaching and teaching staff is, is slim. And again, I think that this goes down to also how we're marketing and how we're exposing students to the education profession. Um, I do believe that there's a lot more work that we need to do, you know, in the at the college level, even before the college level to start sparking those interests of um, educators to fill these gaps that we know that we're having. However, I do think that sometimes people come into teaching and they think that it's going to be an easy job. It's a, you know, eight to three job. Uh, and it's really not. It, it weighs on you. Uh, it's an emotional journey. It's very challenging and you have to problem solve every day. Uh, but for me, I think it's just important to be honest with people. I mean, sometimes people come into education and they're really not cut out to be teachers. And, you know, that's OK. And I think as leaders, we have to help people determine, you know, is this really going to be your life's work? Because if mm. you're going to be in education, it really is a dedication. It's a life work. It's a service. It's um, something that you have to dedicate more than what it looks like you're dedicating on paper because you are going to go home and you're going to think about your students and you're going to think about the staff and you're going to worry about them over Christmas break. Like, are, yep. do they have enough to eat? Are they in a warm home? Are they safe? Um, and so it's really it's a blessing and a curse to be in the position of a teacher because you have this great opportunity to change lives. Right. But. Also, when you understand your students, you get to know your students, you understand the burdens that they bear and they still make it to school every day. We carry some of that as educators. So, um, again, I don't have an easy answer. Uh, we're constantly trying to battle our shortage as well. I mean, we have tried to tap, you know, some industry people that, are, you know, that are not education um, by upbringing, but they have, you know, want to change careers. There are challenges with that as well because they know their content, but need some extra help on that pedagogy and how to transfer that over to the classroom. Well, I'll ask the question from a different lens then because I mean, again, that's a tough one to, to solve, but, you know, living in a space where we know as leaders, we don't have a large pipeline of folks to fill the seats. 
And if, you know, I'll go back to one of my schools, let's say I'm in one of my schools and I know I've coached this teacher a ton. I know that they are not a fit. They likely know they're not a fit, but I cannot quit them because I'm worried about not being able to find a pipeline. What's the encouragement you give uh, principals or somebody in that situation right now? Yeah, again, I think it's all about knowing your people. And we as principals, we are, or we should be also coaching our teachers. And so when you get to know, it's almost like when you're in a principal position, it's like you're a teacher with students, right? So you have to understand where each of them are. You have to understand things that they're good at and things that they need areas of improvement. And then we have to, you know, praise them on the things that they're doing well, and then figure out what the right supports are to help them in those areas where they may struggle. And, you know, to give you an example, we have, we have veteran teachers who have never really had issues building relationships with kids or with classroom management, but post COVID, um, you know, we're seeing different challenges of behaviors that children are coming to us with, things that children have dealt with at home, but haven't necessarily worked through with mental health professionals that they probably should. And so even teachers who have experience now are seeing some new things. So I think as principals, as leaders, we have to be 10 steps ahead of that curve. And we have to be able to feed our teachers and give them supports and give them strategies to help them. Because it's not like we're not in the profession of, okay, you've been teaching for 30 years, you have it all solved. Because we get a different group, a different cohort of kids in that building every single year. So we have to be able to adapt, including principals. We have to be able to adapt our styles of how we're supporting our teachers. That's great. If teachers feel like they're supported, they will go through the trenches with you. Absolutely. Uh, you have a, a great uh, TED talk on YouTube. People can look up after they listen to the interview about you know creative ideas to help kids thrive. And you talk about uh, the importance of knowing kids' stories. Do you have a creative way or do you have any examples of how you help your educators learn kids' stories and make sure they really know who their kids are that are coming to them every day? Yeah, well, I think it's sometimes difficult for teachers because they have their schedules and, you know, they need to get through their lessons. They have their curriculum that they need to hit, you know, certain benchmarks. And sometimes we get caught up in that and we forget that we have little people that are sitting in our uh, classrooms every single day. So sometimes the strategy I use is I just put it in front of them and, you know, I'll take pieces and parts from a student's life that I know and I will sit down with an entire staff. I do it now sometimes with principals, put together a story and just basically make them reflect on the story and say, what does this mean? What does this mean for you as a teacher? What would you do with this student and try to role play through some of these scenarios Um, Other times, you know, I try to do it through conversations like, well, what do you know about this student? Have you talked to the student's uh, family? What do you know about the student's background? Sometimes you have to help them because another thing, sometimes teachers are a little uncomfortable about getting information about their students. Uh, So I think you have to create that safe space and help teachers understand the more you know about your students, even their home lives will help you figure out how to best address them in the classroom, providing those academic and behavioral support. If you know that a kid has a lot of chaotic stuff to get to school in the morning, perhaps you might want to set aside five or 10 minutes to allow that kid to have a few minutes to themselves before you jump right into curriculum, whereas another kid may not need that to get their day started. So it really helps the teacher. Yeah. Um, and if I can get teachers to understand that if you if you know your kids and you know their triggers 
and you know how they learn best, it's going to help you be a better teacher. The, the hard part I would, I would assume for some teachers is they come into that and hear that and like, okay, I've got a passion. I want to know all my kids. Okay. So then they start learning all their kids then they start figuring out what their ticks are. Well, what could be overwhelming is trying to figure out, you know, let's say you have a kid, a classroom with 25 kids, 25 different strategies where I've got a couple of kids that need something in the morning, some in the middle of the day, some need, you know, just, just, it feels overwhelming as they think about it. How do you help your teachers kind of unpack that overwhelm to be able to put action in mm-hmm. place? So I think one of the things that I talk a lot about with teachers and even with principals, when you're looking at, again, the diversity that you may have in one classroom, to me, the the transitions, the time on task, the structure is critical. Um, It's really important that teachers, you know, have schedules posted for their kids, that things are predictable Uh, when um, schedules are off for kids. You know, sometimes that's when we tend to see the the lack of engagement, I would say. And it's really no different than adults. You know, I say all the time, if you walk in and your secretary is out of the building for the day, or, you know, if someone in our household is sick for the day and our schedule is off to get us to to work, we're kind of thrown off pretty much, maybe not for the whole day, but maybe let's just say for the morning until we get back onto our structure. So I think that those things are important, those transition times for kids, making sure that they feel safe as they're moving through the building, and then um, that time on task that they're in the classroom. And that's where those different strategies, you know, some kids need more to stay on task. Some some kids don't need as much. But as the teacher, you have to make sure that you're getting around to all of those kids. And again, you may not get to every single kid individually every day, but as a teacher, you have to be strategic and I even say principals, be strategic about getting around to each of your teachers, each of your staff members, and just having some sort of personal informal conversation just so you can have those check-ins. That's great. I've heard you talk about, uh, you used a little bit like the flower analogy or seeds, and you said, you know, every seed needs something different. Can you explain that when you think about students? So every seed needs something different in order to be successful. And so tell me a little bit about what that means to you. Yeah, so I love the analogy. Well, first of all, I love flowers. My name is Della Flora, which means flowers. Yep. But um, I think about how each flower, each seed, each plant needs different care in order to thrive and flourish. And so if you if you grow a cactus, you have a different environment for that. If you try to grow certain seeds in rocky soil, they won't grow. But if you grow them in a different type of soil, they, in sandy soil, they will grow. Um, some plants need a lot of sunlight. Some plants need not so much sunlight. So I think, you know, thinking of our students as seeds, right? There, there's a, a world of possibility. When we look at a seed, we don't necessarily know, you know, how big the plant is going to grow. We don't know sometimes what color the flowers are going to be. Sometimes they're multiple colors, right? But what our role is, is to figure out what the right environment is for each of them so that they each can bloom, grow, thrive, flourish in whatever that environment is. So we have an environment that's the schoolhouse, right? But within that schoolhouse, we have to have different rooms and different spaces to give each kid what they need because they're all coming to us from different levels of academic performance. They're coming to us with different family makeups. They're coming to us with different levels of 
trauma and background experiences. And again, if we don't get to know our kids, we won't know what supports they need in that environment in order to grow. And every kid in that building doesn't need the same thing. And so good educators will take the time to differentiate and to figure out what those supports are so that each kid can grow where they are. Have you ever, when you think about the most challenging students that you've experienced, have you had teachers push back on your encouragement of special circumstances or unique support services for those kids because they were just upset that it felt like they were getting special privileges and rewarded for bad behavior. And if you have, like, how have you responded to those teachers when they push back on you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, you talk about environments and usually if a behavior occurs, it occurs somewhere within the schoolhouse, usually in the classroom or on the playground or in the hallway. Uh, when it comes to the principal level, or even now as an assistant superintendent, I often hear appeals for suspensions or expulsion hearings. Um, you know, you get to, you have the time to actually sit down and really understand what the root cause of those behaviors are. And, you know, what I have found in my experience is a lot of times kids are just bringing to school the environments that they are in out of school. And they're actually in those environments more than they are with us at the school building. So lots of times when they are displaying bad behavior, so to speak, they're lacking a skill. Just as if a child comes and doesn't know how to read or child comes and doesn't know how to do math. We actually would teach them strategies to help them put the words together and to, you know, do addition and subtraction. We teach them all kinds of strategies, but we don't necessarily have those for behavior. So I talk to teachers and let them know, you know, sometimes there's additional information that we get as principals. And sometimes I share that information. Sometimes I try to get the families to sit down with the teachers so they can hear it firsthand versus just hearing it from me. And then we look at how can we support the student? Because I do believe that there are times when kids need to be suspended from school. Um, you know, they need to be away from the school. But the sad thing about that is nobody really is working with them on how to correct that behavior when they come back. So we have to think a little bit differently. Yes, kids can get suspended, but we have to have a plan for helping them understand the reason why they got suspended. And then we have to give them strategies to help them with what to use when faced with that situation again. I think if you think about old school uh, and schooling, we would assume that all parents were on the same level and would send their kids to school with all of the same expectations. But yep. that is not necessarily the case. Um, and so that's where it's like we have to basically teach some of our kids how to do school. They're not walking through the school door, understanding the social aspects of school, the academic demands and the behavioral expectations. So as you're talking, one of the questions that we just had a recent podcast discussion around describing your ideal school. And I'm curious, as you were talking, like when you think about, like when you go visit the schools that are in your district or when you go visit schools in neighboring districts or wherever you travel, how would you describe the ideal school you're looking for? And I'm talking from an adult culture from a staff culture, you know, from an adult staff culture, from a student lens, and then maybe from a family lens? Yeah. So if I had unlimited resources for an ideal school, uh, it, it would be pleasing to the eye, the actual facility of the building. Uh, 
some people say it doesn't make a difference. I think it does make a difference. I think it signals to children when they walk through that door, if they're valued or not based on what their school looks like. Um, From the adult side, I think that all of the adults would be working collaboratively together. They would be kind to each other. They would speak to each other. They would um, be kind and respectful to students. And I also think that I wouldn't necessarily see a delineation between Um, the different roles, because sometimes there is this division in schools between the cafeteria workers and the instructional assistants and the nurses and the custodians. I think all of them should have ownership over those students. And, you know, students should look at them all as if they are their teachers. That would be. um, And so moving to students, I think the ideal school students would feel cared for and respected by all of the staff members there. They would feel that it was a safe place. They would feel that they could say um, or go to any of the staff members for help um, and that they would not be judged or have something held against them because they have made a mistake or have asked for help for something that they didn't understand or didn't know. And from a family perspective, same thing. I would want an open and welcoming environment. I would want to know that, you know, my principal and my teachers cared about me. My kids were safe. My kids were learning. My kids were thriving and growing and moving from, you know, the academic level that they started grade in, that they're progressing to where they need to, that they're learning life skills um, and knowing how to problem solve, how to do conflict resolution, how to get along with others, how to treat other people people nicely and kindly. Uh, I was at a school in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, of all places the other day. And um, I kind of asked the kid the same question. And it was a fifth grader and he's been in the school for six years and said, you know, I think the best way for me to describe it is I know I matter here. Mm -hmm. And that to me was like all the things you just said, it was like, oh, that was exactly what I wish my kids would say that I didn't have ever have the words for it. And so that's what I hear when you talk is that kids knowing that they they matter in the scheme of things and their story, their unique story is what I hear from you matters, right? And it makes a difference and people want to know it and want to help them flourish, right? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we overthink like what makes a great school. Yeah. Uh, like it, it could be something as simple as, and, and kids have said this to me and I've observed this in buildings that I've been in. It could be as simple as saying hello to everybody, you know? Some kids come in and and nobody has really talked to them that morning. A lot of our kids get themselves up. They go to the bus stop on their own. They get to school. Um, And so just as simple as say, hey, good morning. How are you? I'm so happy to see you. You know, those little things are the things that make children feel welcome and exactly what you're getting to that they matter. We have, unfortunately, also students who, you know, I've spoken to in my past that say like, well, why aren't you coming to school? Like some of the chronically absent kids all want to know, like, Hey, I'm the assistant superintendent and you're on my list of kids who doesn't come to school. You know, I just I'm trying to understand, is there something we can help you with? And, you know, several of the kids, you know, they're they're candid with you. will say, you know, like, well, no one ever no one's really calling looking for me. So yep. why am I coming to school? They don't care if I'm at school or not. So, again, um, this is a small thing pick up the phone and say, Hey, why aren't you at school today? We miss you. You know, those are the things that can get kids to school or at least open that line of communication when kids do experience barriers to getting to school that they feel like, Hey, I can tell you, I don't have transportation or I'm having an issue that's helping me get to school. Those relationships and feeling like they're valued and cared for are critical to helping kids feel part of the school climate. 
Absolutely. So before we get to the last four questions that we close every uh, episode out with, you don't, you know, you work with your county schools, which is great, but also you do work with other schools. And when you think about how you do consulting or training or development to help other schools improve, what is your favorite work to do? What is your favorite? um, I I know you like to dive into about every aspect of the educational building, uh, but what's the work that you just kind of geek out on trying to help folks solve? My favorite work to do right now is working with the adults to help them be able to look through a different lens. Mm. Um, Again, I think in our training as educators, it's not always that the adult is right, but it's always that the adult is in charge in the classroom. And sometimes that in charge definition uh, needs to expand because, again, we have a lot of our students that are basically filling adult roles at home and then they come to school and we're expecting them to switch. So for me, it's, it's sharing those stories, right. And even sharing some of the success stories and some of the not so successful stories and and asking those questions, like if this kid had a caring adult in their life, would the trajectory be this, right. Or where could we intercede in this student's life to give them a different trajectory? And so for me, it's about opening mindsets and helping adults kind of get out of their own way, building empathy versus sympathy, because there also is that fine line when you start to understand what your students are going through, that you start to carry this, what a lot of people will call secondary trauma. Like I haven't witnessed uh, the grief or the violence that my students have, but if I hear it so many times, I start to carry that burden. So helping them understand these are children. We have the ability to help them with strategies to, we may not be able to remove them from their homes, but we can at least create school to be a safe place where these children can still thrive despite the things that they may be dealing with outside of school. So my role now is more with adults, even though I miss working with kids directly. Um, But it's really about changing those mindsets or getting adults to see different ways. That's awesome. I think, you know, we've talked consistently with uh, other guests recently about how one of the challenges that we see from principals being as effective as they can be is that they come from a classroom to the principal role and they they keep their whole lens and paradigms on communicating with kids mm-hmm. where actually they need to be helping adults work mm-hmm. on their shift in paradigm. So it's refreshing to hear you say that's where your passion is, because that's where I think a big part of this work is needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as you know, the last four questions, I just want to dive in real quickly so we can make sure we get out of here on time. You know, you're someone who is seems to be a very disciplined person. And so we want to learn from people's habits and disciplines that you have. And so is there a habit or discipline that you use on a regular basis, whether it's daily or weekly, that helps you be the best version of yourself? Yeah, I actually try. It doesn't happen every week, but I try to do a reflective journal. Um, I'm old school, so I still like to write. And again, I don't get to it every week, but I do find power in taking that time to reflect. And what I also enjoy is being able to go back and read those because sometimes you think you're going through something that is just impossible. And then when you, you know, take yourself away from it a few months down the road, a year or two down the road and go back and read those um, reflective journals. I think that it's helpful. Again, 
it's something that we do, you know, working on our degrees. Lots of professors will require you to do reflective journals, but it's something I think we move away from once we're in the profession because we just run out of time. There's just no time to do it. So you can just take five to 10 minutes, um, you know, a week and just kind of like jot down things that you're happy about, things that you want to work on, um, things that you'd like to fix. And I think it helps you over your leadership journey. That's awesome. Uh, What's a book that you've read either recently or over your career, and it doesn't have to be just one book, that you feel like has been so impactful in your life that you want other people to check out? Oh my gosh, I have so many books. Right, so you can you can keep it to a small number, but you just think about you know whether it's just recently that something that you just can't get out of your mind, or it's you know over time that you keep referring back to people. Well, let's see. I think um, there is one book called The Traveler's Wife, and it's not really a um, educational book, but I think it just helps put things into perspective for, um, again, being a leader in life and the importance of those time periods. Yep. Uh, the other book that I would say for education that um, has been just a reflective thing, and I still find a lot of things similar, is um, Savage Inequalities. Um, I think it's Jonathan Kozel that wrote that book, uh, but uh, I think it's every educator should read that. And again, written a while ago, but still very relevant today. Um, when you're working out or driving to or from school or taking a walk around your neighborhood, I'm curious, what's on your playlist? What kind of music? What kind of artists? What songs? Uh, we just I, I find that people are really either connected to music or we've had guests that music doesn't speak to them, but they have you know, something they listen to, to take them to a place. So I'm always curious what, what you're listening to. Well, I um, am a big fan of Apple music and uh, I love music, all kinds of music. If I ever quit education, I am going to be a DJ. So, you know, maybe I can DJ some educational conferences. I'm pretty sure I would be a hit. Um, but I just love all kinds of genres, a uh, lot of hip hop, just because it has an upbeat uh, music to it right now because it's the holidays. I'm listening to Christmas music 24 yeah. seven. <laughs> I don't know if you, do you, do you like, do you like to make playlists if you have a DJ thing in the future? Cause I, my buddies and I have competitions on who makes the best Christmas playlist. And we always pass it around to each other to figure out who's, who's got the biggest bangers on their playlist. Yeah. I'm all about the playlist. I'm all about the sound effects and everything. Yeah. So I have a little fun with it, but you know, music is a good uh, release. That's awesome. So last question you know, someone like you who's around a lot of great leaders and a lot of thought leaders, I, I'm curious, what's the best piece of either leadership or change advice, you know, life change advice that you've come across with recently that you, you want to share with others or you just have to share with others? Could be your own advice or advice that you've come across that's kind of uh, sparked something in your heart. Yeah, I think it's it's a little twofold. Um, first one is going to be an easy one. Just don't quit. Um, I think that as long as you keep going and you get up every day and you're going to attempt to do your best work, that you will have success. You may not have all of the success that you want overnight. It is a journey. Um, but as long as you, like I said, if you're committing yourself to education or leadership, you have to know that it's not going to be an easy road. And if you think about all of the successful people or a successful person, um, they will talk to you a lot about the failures that they've had. And so if they quit 
at that first failure or they quit at that second failure, they would have never made it to where they are now. So I just think it's important that you get into that mindset. You know, what can I do? Maybe it's doing something different. But if you have that mindset, don't quit and you're going to get up every single day and you're going to give your best and you're going to do your best over time. You're going to, again, see the benefit of all of the work that you do. And sometimes it's very difficult to see when you're in it, but you have to trust and believe that if you are doing your best work and you're putting your best foot forward, that over time, all of those little increments are going to build up into your ultimate success. Olympia, I appreciate you making time. I know you're incredibly busy. I can't imagine the meetings that you probably are in between right now and the problems you're trying to solve. So the fact that you made time for us today is a huge blessing. So thank you. We appreciate it. And we wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the time and I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential. Mm-hmm.